my name is Anne McClellan, and I am a senior advisor in the public policy practice group at the law firm of Bennett Jones LLP. I am also a member of the advisory board for Canada 2020. Once again, I want to welcome everyone to the Recovery Project. And this is an initiative launched by Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa and Global Progress. And it's focused on the long road to economic and social recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm moderating what can only be described as a crucial conversation for the recovery project, focused on the race to find a vaccine. I'm joined by two special guests about whom I will say more in just a minute. But first, let me remind you that we will try and dedicate the last 15 minutes or so of today's conversation to answering your questions. Let me introduce our special guests for today. Dr. Shabir Mahdi is Professor of Vaccinology at Witwatersrand University in South Africa. He is co-founder and co-director of the African Leadership Initiative for Vaccinology Expertise. And most interestingly, I think in some respects for our discussion this morning, he is leading the phase two, three clinical trials in South Africa for the Oxford Vaccine Project. Welcome, Dr. Mahdi. Thank you. Dr. Bernstein, Alan Bernstein, well-known, I think, to many Canadians, is CEO and President of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, CIFAR. And let me say, Alan, in the interest of full disclosure, that I sit on the board of CIFAR, therefore Alan and I have the opportunity to work together quite frequently. Alan is also, or was, the founding president of the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. And for those of you who don't know, the CIHR under Alan's leadership transformed the way health research is now being done in this country. And he was also the executive director of the global HIV vaccine enterprise in New York for a number of years. Both Drs. Bernstein and Mahdi are members of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Scientific Advisory Committee. Welcome to you both, and I hope if you don't mind, I will refer to you as Alan and Shabir for the sake of our conversation. Before delving into our discussion, just a tiny bit of context. I think as we all know, the search for a vaccine is crucial. Without one, a full recovery is not possible. Bill Gates, who is one of the world's true leaders in relation to funding, I would say, vaccine and immunization research, said the following just a little while ago. Humankind has never had a more urgent task than creating broad immunity for coronavirus. Realistically, if we're going to return to normal, we need to develop a safe, effective vaccine. We need to make billions of doses. We need to get them out to every part of the world, and we need all of this to happen as quickly as possible. Last week, Canada's Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, reminded us of this fact as well, when he said, as a global community, we must work together to make sure that people around the world have access to vaccinations. 
especially the most vulnerable. It should come as no shock to anyone that the health of our citizens depends upon the health of everyone, everywhere. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it, Shabir and Alan. Again, thank you for joining us. And Shabir, I'm going to go to you first, because I think it's important to set the stage, if you like, in terms of where various parts of the world are at in relation to the coronavirus and what we're seeing. And let me say, on behalf of Canadians, that I don't think we pay nearly enough attention to what is happening in the developing global south, and especially in Africa and where you are in South Africa. Your president said something last week that caught my attention. The storm is upon us in referring to the coronavirus. So Shabir, maybe you could set the stage a little bit for us in relation to what is happening in South Africa and more generally in Africa. Thank you for having me in. So I think the reality is that what's happening right now on the African continent is really a systematic underestimation in terms of what COVID is causing when it comes to burden of disease. So Africa makes up about 16 to 17% of the global population, a population of 1.3 billion. The number of COVID cases that have been reported from Africa constitutes less than 5% of the global, bur global burden of COVID-19 that's reported and that's diagnosed. So Africa is sitting just over 750,000 cases uh, compared to 14.7 million cases having been reported globally. Now, is it conceptually feasible that Africa, which constitutes 18 to 20% of the global population, is only contributing to a handful of the COVID-19 cases? And the short answer to that is no. Unfortunately, what we've got present in Africa is systematic uh, sort of constraints in terms of our ability to actually diagnose cases to start off with. So what is the legacy of this? When we go back to 2009, the swine flu pandemic that occurred, what was realized in the 2009 swine flu pandemic is that Africa and South Asia constituted less than 5% of all of the cases that were actually reported in 2009 for swine flu. Yet, when the analysis was made in terms of where did the majority of deaths occur because of swine flu, 55% of all deaths from swine flu in fact occurred on African continent and South Asia. So the ability of the continent to be able to diagnose cases, the, ability, the resources in terms of being able to test at scale, unfortunately doesn't exist. Let me give you an example of two countries, South Africa and Nigeria. Nigeria has got a population four times greater than South Africa. The number of cases that have been diagnosed in South Africa right now is sitting about 360,000. The number of cases that's diagnosed in Nigeria, four times the population of South Africa is one-tenth, about 35,000. The number of testing done in South Africa is about 70 times greater than the amount of testing that's done in Nigeria. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that we're reporting so many more cases compared to probably the most populous country on the continent, simply because they're not testing at scale and there isn't that resource to be able to test at scale. So we've got a major problem in terms of the credibility of the data that's coming forward from Africa because we're simply unable to identify and diagnose those cases. And consequently, what's going to end up happening is that it's really when the pandemic has almost passed that we're going to be able to do some sort of an estimate as to the true number of people that have been infected on the continent, as well as the true number of people that would have died of COVID-19. Thank you. 
Alan, how about a brief snapshot of what we call the global north? And Shabir has focused on the importance of testing. And even when you look at developed countries such as the United States, but our own Canada, testing is an important issue. I think people probably have some reason to be skeptical in terms of whether we're actually getting uh, accurate data around how prevalent the disease is. So I think the testing has actually improved a lot and over the last uh, two or three months across the country. But I think we're on a journey uh, with this pandemic. And I think we're in the early stages of this journey. And we shouldn't fool ourselves or kid ourselves that uh, we're reaching the end stage. I think it's quite the opposite. And this is uh, even assuming we get a vaccine that's available, we're not, it won't be available, I think, broadly until late this year or early next year, more likely or beyond that. So um, if you think about uh, now that it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, we're all outside more, which is a good thing, but flu season is coming. So I think we need to be quite concerned that we'll have a double pandemic slash epidemic in the fall or winter of flu and influenza and, and COVID-19. Uh, and so there, I think there's reason to be concerned. And if you look at what's happening, even in Canada, most recently, as people are loosening up, we're starting to see an uptick in the number of cases, probably largely because 20 and 30 year olds are not obeying the distancing and wearing mask rules. Uh, they're glad to be out and being able to socialize. Um, and so I think there's good reason to be concerned. And, and how we start to clamp down during the re inevitable rebound that we're gonna see in the fall is gonna be a challenge for all of us, and especially of course our politicians. Thank you. So. A vaccine seems to be pretty important here if uh, we're going to uh, have any kind of sustainable recovery. Alan, to you, as we know, there are, I think, approximately 150 various research vaccine research projects at different stages. We hear now thrown around regularly, phase one, phase two, phase three. Maybe, Alan, talk to us just a little bit about what that means, the science, if you like, of vaccines. We're hearing more about neutralizing antibodies and T cells. Obviously, this isn't a course in vaccinology, but maybe just a little bit of a basic intro to those concepts for people. Yeah. The good thing is, I think we're all becoming scientists. I was out for drinks with a friend who's not a scientist, and he was asking me about T cells. Much <laughs> so, a very brief, painless course. I think in terms of stages, so I'll back up. In terms of how vaccines work, what vaccines basically do is very simple. They pre-arm our immune system. They prepare our immune system. Here's what a possible pathogen should look like. Get ready for it. And we can talk about what get ready means, but get ready for it. So that when you actually are infected with the pathogen, you're already prepared as opposed to tooling up. Because by the time our immune system tools up, in the case of COVID, for example, or influenza or any other pathogen, by the time we tool up our immune system, it's too late in many cases. The virus has already done its damage. And much of that damage can be irreversible, of course. The steps of making a vaccine, they start with a preclinical work. That is work in the, in the lab, and the Petri dish, cloning parts of the virus, most frequently in the case of COVID, doing work in mice to see whether the, the vaccine has any potential efficacy in terms of protecting against disease. 
if it looks like, or in monkeys or other, other appropriate preclinical animal models, if it looks like the vaccine is both safe and effective in preclinical models, then uh, with regulatory approval, we go into a phase one trial. A phase one trial has one objective, and that is to see whether the vaccine is safe on a small number of people. And it's small because we don't want to expose a large number of people to a vaccine that might be dangerous. So small means typically 50 to 100 people. If it's shown that it's safe, and safe doesn't necessarily mean there are no adverse reactions. So, you know, we all get a sore arm when we get the flu shot and perhaps even more headaches, et cetera, but safe in the sense of not life-threatening or, or serious uh, disease, serious disorders. Then it goes on to a larger study of a phase two, phase three. A phase three trial ultimately is, is testing a lot of people, thousands of people, sometimes divided into different subgroups seniors versus young people, um, ethnicity, male versus female, uh, you know, et cetera, um, to look at whether the vaccine is not just safe in a larger number of people, but also can prevent disease or block transmission of the virus from individual to individual. So those are the three phases. And of course, on top of that, there's regulatory oversight all along the way. And of course, and vaccines, of course, cannot be introduced into the population until a government regulatory authority, in Canada's case, it's Health Canada, as you well know, uh, approves the drug, uh, the vaccine, uh, for safety and efficacy. Now, efficacy, uh, we know from our annual flu shots, it does not necessarily mean 100% protection. And so there are modelers are now who say, what are the minimum levels of protection? So in the U.S., the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, has said above 50% would be satisfactory. Of course, the higher the number, the better. Uh, but we'll have to just see what the trials show. Thank you. Shabir, all this seems to be moving very quickly in comparison to traditional clinical trials, whether it's around a new drug or a new vaccine in this case. Dr. Anthony Fauci two months ago said that he thought it would be at least 18 months. Last week, Dr. Fauci was saying, well, maybe by December or early uh, in the new year. What does this tell us about perhaps the transformation of vaccine research, how that research is being done? You're right in the middle of phase two, three clinical trials for the Oxford Project. And should we be concerned about safety, Alan's reference safety as a phase one preoccupation? Should we be concerned about safety as we see the acceleration and let's call it rush to come up uh, with a vaccine or obviously more than one vaccine? As you correctly pointed out, point out, usually time span to develop a vaccine from the time of discovery to the time of licensure is anything between five to 20 years. In fact, the shortest time period up to now has been four years for rubella vaccine, which was a fairly simple vaccine to sort of develop. Now, what we're looking at is a time span of 12 to 18 months. Uh, is a vaccine going to be ready in the first quarter of next year? Probably unlikely. I think where we are right now is we're probably in the phase of having a number of vaccines going to phase three studies. There's at least three, three vaccines currently in phase three studies, and we probably will have results from those vaccines uh, in the next six months or so, uh, towards the end of this year, or at least sometime in the first quarter of next year. But that doesn't equate uh, having a vaccine that becomes available for public use. So there's still a path to actually follow. Now, is there some risk in terms of this accelerated uh, timelines that we're looking at to develop a vaccine? 
So part of the reasons why we've been successful in terms of accelerating the development of this vaccine is much of the technology that's been used. It's actually technology that was developed for purposes of other vaccines. So as an example, the vaccine that was developed by the University of Oxford, that same technology had been used to develop a vaccine for Ebola, to develop a vaccine for SARS, and to develop a vaccine for MERS. Uh, the SARS and the MERS vaccines actually went into clinical trials, but because those epidemics sort of burnt out, those vaccines never went into efficacy trials. They didn't go into the phase two, phase three component. But a technology existed that when the new virus came about, they were easily able to use that technology, adapt it, and develop a vaccine for SARS coronavirus uh, too. Uh, similarly, in the, in the US, the NIH were able to use a really novel technology, gene-based technology, to develop a vaccine within a space of two to three months. But that is an investigational product. The next challenge is firstly to determine whether the vaccine is safe, as Ellen has mentioned, and then to determine whether the vaccine actually protects against COVID-19 or not. Now, are we going to have a vaccine available in the first quarter of next year? That's a big question mark. The reality of vaccine development is that it's only about 10% of vaccines that go into human trials that eventually are found to be safe as well as efficacious, as well as protect against a disease. So of the three vaccines that are currently in phase three studies, uh, if we have one vaccine early next year that has been shown to actually protect against COVID-19 and that has got an adequate safety profile, that would be a huge accomplishment. So I think the goal is there, the desire is there, the urgency is there. I think we're operating under very different, unusual circumstances. We can't follow a traditional pathway in terms of vaccine development, so, but there are some inherent risks involved and included amongst those inherent risks is a greater chance of failure. When it comes to safety, I'm less concerned about safety. I am concerned about the safety, but built into these phase three studies, which are going to include up to 30,000 individuals, built into those studies is adequate power to be able to determine whether there are major safety issues. And a vaccine is not going to get licensed it's not going to be made available for public use until the question of safety has been adequately addressed. One point to what Shabir has just said. I think what we're witnessing is a real transformation in how vaccines are developed and tested. Uh, to go from four years to you know, six months or nine months is remarkable. Um, and it does, as, as Shabir said, reflect the, the urgency and the global crisis that uh, we're all in. Um, and so one of the things that's happening is rather than doing each of these phases sequentially and then deciding whether to scale up manufacturing of the potentially you know, 9 billion doses we're going to need for everyone on the planet, um, what's happening is the, the, tr the trials of the vaccines that are going on are now being planned simultaneously. That is, while the phase one is going on, we're assuming it's going to work and be ready the second we get the data on the phase one to start the phase two and three. Indeed, many of the people in phase one are now included in the phase two and three. Ditto, the manufacturing plants are being made ready, and in some cases, actually the vaccine is being manufactured before we know whether it's safe and effective. So that's at great cost, but it's worth it if you think about it, the time that would be saved if, in fact, the vaccine turns out to be safe and effective. Just on that point, I was reading over the weekend, and I guess I was a bit surprised that, to your point around the manufacturing, 
that people are talking about either manufacturing now or manufacturing in September before we have the results from phase three trials. So that obviously companies like AstraZeneca, Pfizer, they're running a substantial risk, aren't they? That in fact, whatever they're manufacturing may never get to the market. Well, the risk is not entirely being borne by the manufacturers, or in fact, being borne by governments as well, by all of us uh, yeah. through our taxes, um, uh, because governments are, are making advanced purchase agreements where they're, right. they're saying exactly. to the manufacturers, we want your, your vaccine if it works. We'll give you some money up front to help you manufacture it. So these, these are being called at-risk or no-regret investments. Right. For exactly that reason, um, and I think it's a these are reasonable, actually quite good investments. If you think about just in Canada, the cost to our economy of being locked down, of of not going back to work, uh, of even shortening that pandemic by a month, would more than save whatever we're investing in these at-risk investments of manufacturing. Um, Shabir, you did mention um, well, as you both have, the importance of safety. Regulators usually want to see years of safety data, which I think leads to maybe some conspiracy theorists out there thinking that the safety of the public will be sacrificed uh, for the speed, for the need of a vaccine and the speed in which uh, people hope that's delivered. Uh, what do you think uh, the reaction of regulators will be? Uh, because I think we as citizens uh, see the regulator obviously as our guarantee. There is no guarantee. We know that some people have adverse effects and so on. But is it reasonable to think that regulators may be pushed into sacrificing their normal concern around safety? So I think when it comes to safety, as an example, if we take the vaccine that was developed by the University of Oxford, that's now been sort of taken over by AstraZeneca. Uh, before that vaccine is licensed, it probably would have been evaluated in close to 45,000 individuals uh, in the US, in the UK, in Brazil, in South Africa, 45,000. And with that sort of a sample size, you should be able to identify relatively uncommon side effects with a sample size of 45,000. But that is not the end in terms of pharmacovigilance. So it will be mandated upon all of these manufacturers to actually build into their program ongoing surveillance for safety, even after the vaccine becomes used, uh, even be it under emergency use uh, sort of authorization. So yes, there is a risk, but I think given the large sample size that many of the studies are going to be including, uh, it should be able to pick up uh, unusual side effects that are relatively uncommon. Uh, but that would still need to be coupled with uh, ongoing pharmacovigilance. Alan, is it possible to get the trifecta of success with a vaccine that it prevents me from contracting it? If I do, it lessens the symptoms and it prevents transmission, me transmitting to others. Does one vaccine deliver that trifecta or not? Well, that's, that's what we hope. That's the ultimate goal, and that is indeed the endpoints of some of the trials that are being done. Uh, uh, whether it will do uh, both of those things, actually uh, prevent disease and prevent transmission or block trans the transmission chain, we'll have to see. Your question, is it possible? The answer is yes. 
Will we achieve it? We don't know until we actually do the experiment, which is the clinical trials that Shabir and people around the world are now engaged in. But the endpoint measurements will be exactly that. Um, can we block the transmission chain? And can we prevent the, the symptoms of disease? And is it safe? Those are the three things that uh, would be the, the ideal vaccine. I just have to follow up on that. In terms of this whole notion that a vaccine induces herd immunity, because of the design of the studies that are currently underway, those studies won't necessarily lend itself to answering the question as to whether the vaccine induces herd immunity. It's really when that vaccine is actually introduced at scale that we would be able to unpack whether those vaccines are successful in terms of interrupting that, that sort of chain of transmission. So even if the vaccine doesn't necessarily uh, prevent infection, there's still a possibility that it's able to do something sufficient to actually break that uh, chain of transmission. So there's a whole notion of herd immunity. Uh, like Ellen mentioned, we're looking at requiring not even 8 billion doses, but rather 16 billion doses. Because for most of these vaccines, you're going to need to give at least two doses. And to be able to produce that in a relatively short period of time of even two to three years is going to be a huge mission. So our best hope really rests upon these vaccines being able to induce sufficient immunity in at least about 40 to 60% of the population, and in doing so, sort of break the, uh, interrupt the chain of transmission, which is where the herd immunity component of it comes into play. Another facet of that, of, to build on what Shabir just said, is we don't know yet from any of the vaccines that have been done, including results that were announced today, what the longevity of the protection is. Uh, and that's a key question because both in terms of herd immunity, but also whether we'll need a second or third dose. Uh, for example, we all get a new flu shot every year uh, or we get a booster shot for, for, uh, for polio or what have you. Um, uh, so we don't know for coronaviruses and there's some reason to think that longevity is gonna be an issue with coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. And I see, Shabir, you're involved with the Oxford Project. They and Moderna, and there are probably others, but they're much discussed. They are using two doses, right? That, that in fact, their research, phase two, three, or three will be premised on two doses. Correct. I think for this novel virus, there's very little sort of community immunity at an individual level or at, or at a community level. So in all likelihood, you do need that priming dose and follow it up with a booster dose to get sort of sufficient concentrations of antibody. With the University of Oxford uh, vaccine candidate, uh, they were able to show a fairly high percentage, almost 80% of individuals after a single dose were able to develop what we call functional antibody or neutralizing antibody. Uh, but that sort of concentration increased three to fourfold after a second dose. And Ellen, as Ellen points out, it might have uh, relevance in terms of the, the durability of those antibody responses, as well as the second dose inducing adequate memory responses, which can be more long lasting. Just before we move on to the challenges around manufacturing, one does see out there in the literature and on the news, a discussion around human challenge trials. Is that just a, if you like, sideshow in terms of uh, the research that's going on? Uh, certainly there have been human challenge trials in other areas, I gather, like malaria. But, and I understand it to be when people put up their hands and say, I am volunteering to be infected uh, with the virus. One can understand why that's controversial. Do you anticipate human challenge trials here? Or is that something that's reasonably discredited by good scientists? I just don't know. 
I'll jump in here, Shabir. You can help me out in a moment. First of all, let's define a human challenge trial. A human challenge trial is where you're uh, given the vaccine and then challenged with live virus. Okay. So you're not waiting for the person to be naturally infected over a period of weeks or months. You're given the virus, you know, a certain period of time afterwards so that it speeds up getting the result. That's the huge advantage of a challenge trial. And also it could be applied to populations like Canada's now where there are very few people where, where the virus is not circulating very broadly. So there's very few people in our population, luckily, that are getting COVID-19. So we couldn't really do a phase three trial here. There's not just not enough people getting infected. Okay, the problem with that is an ethical problem, amongst other things. And I'll come back to the other things in a moment. The ethical issue, of course, is um, we know that COVID-19 can kill. And so if the vaccine doesn't work, it'd be nice to be able to have a drug or some other method of rescuing uh, that individual from, from dying or severe d disease uh, as a result of the challenge. We don't have that. And so you really are exposing people to a very serious outcome including death, as a result of a challenge trial. And I would view that as being unethical. Now, having said that, there was a recently a letter signed by uh, over 100, uh, some of whom were distinguished epidemiologists and vaccinologists calling for human challenge trials, given the alternative of waiting months for these phase three trials to, to complete. I still feel that unethical way to proceed. The other challenge with a challenge trial is the huge diversity of responses to COVID-19. From most people are asymptomatic on the one hand, all the way to you know, severe lung disease to death, which means that to really get statistically valid results from a challenge trial, you have to challenge a lot of people and therefore expose a lot of people to dying potentially from this challenge. So I think given all of that, uh, to me, it's a non-starter. Shabir? Beer, I hope you agree. <laughs> no, I have to agree with Ellen. And I think the other big challenge that you face with this challenge studies is that essentially you usually need to limit it to individuals that are relatively healthy. And as we know for COVID-19, the severe disease is not occurring in the average 20-year-old who's been in a gym every second day of his life. It's occurring in those individuals with comorbidities, uh, and the elderly. Uh, so there, there is an issue in terms, it's a proof of concept, yes, it might work, but certainly it wouldn't address an issue in terms of actual efficacy in the target group that we're most interested in uh, protecting. So for all of the reasons that Ellen mentioned, coupled with, effect, with the issue of generalizability, I think you would still need to be compelled to actually follow it through with some sort of uh, efficacy effectiveness study in those individuals that are at high risk of severe, of severe disease and of dying of COVID. We are getting questions, but before we go there, let me ask you next stage of this, manufacturing the vaccine. Shabir, you and I and Alan talked briefly last week. You said that basically there is no manufacturing capacity in either South Africa or Africa more generally. Um, so that means what? That who is going to manufacture uh, whatever vaccines are seen to be safe and efficacious? It, uh, is manufacturing capacity uh, contain or 
restrained to the, if you like, developed nations of the world. Uh, and Alan, Canada, we are a developed, prosperous nation. Where's our manufacturing capacity? So Shabir, why don't you speak to the situation in Africa around the lack of manufacturing capacity first? Yeah, so, and I think this is a critical issue and it's really, unfortunately, a consequence of systematic underinvestment in terms of science on African continent. And I think governments need to be held to account for that. About six years ago, the AU, in fact, made bold announcements about how it was going to pursue a development of vaccines on African continent. And six years later, after all of the governments that signed up to that declaration, there's still pretty much nothing that has happened on the African continent. But this unfortunately is not a time to be able to hold governments to account because we're under an emergency situation. So where do we, where does Africa stand in this? We unfortunately stand at the mercy of people outside of the continent. Fortunately, there is manufacturing capacity in other low middle income countries. And in particular, as an example in, the, in um, India, as well as in Indonesia. Now, AstraZeneca, as an example, has gone into some sort of a partnership with India for India to produce up to a billion doses of vaccine, or if that vaccine is shown to be efficacious. Uh, but the story doesn't end there, unfortunately, because the Indian government is on record as saying that, well, India will be producing a billion doses of vaccine, but that's pretty much what India would probably actually require in terms of number of doses of vaccine. So... This is, Ellen mentioned that one of the issues that all of these companies are not actually just going out on risk on their own. Governments are already buying into vaccines that don't actually exist, including the US as an example. They've put over $3 billion already into different uh, pharmaceutical companies to procure vaccine in advance. So we're going to face huge challenges in terms of access to vaccine. And that's the reason why it's important for this sort of multilateral arrangements to start kicking in immediately and not uh, in, the, in 12 months from now. Or else what would end up happening is exactly what happened in 2009 with a much less severe pandemic. And that is the swine flu vaccine only came to South Africa after the pandemic had passed. Uh, and for many other African countries, it never even appeared on the horizon. So we can't afford for history to repeat itself. Uh, African governments need to be held to account as to why they fail in terms of investing for manufacturing capacity on the continent. But at the same time, we need to basically see what can be done over a short period of time. And the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, together with CEPI, is promoting this initiative known as COVAX, which would sort of do an advanced market uh, commitment in terms of procurement of vaccine, which will hopefully become accessible uh, to at least some low middle income countries. Alan. We here, sitting in one of the most prosperous nations in the world, don't seem to have manufacturing capacity, at least at this moment. So what do you think that says to us about our level of preparedness? Well, we're not prepared. Uh, that's the short answer. And I think the, uh, we should have learned our lesson uh, from the PPE incident from a few months back when President Trump said no PPEs would go from the United States to Canada. And then when we got a number of PPEs from China, a lot of them turned out to be defective. And so I think the, the lesson from all of that is to protect the, the health of Canadians, we need our own uh, domestic manufacturing capacity. Having said that, uh, it's going to be very hard to convince a company to scale up to produce, let's say, 70 million 
uh, shots of a vaccine if for the next COVID-19, and I think we should anticipate there will be, um, if we don't know, if the company doesn't know when that's going to happen. So I think this is a public good. And again, I think the government, the federal government's going to have to step in and develop a kind of a consortium model, a public partnership model with manufacturers and with academia to think about uh, building a facility uh, for both sort of normal times. We need a new flu vaccine every year, uh, as well as uh, for the next pandemic. Um, as well as providing vaccines for the developing world. I think that's part of our obligation as well. And so it, it has both health implications, but it also has industrial implications. I mean, this is uh, a big industry. Uh, producing 9 billion shots for the world is a huge manufacturing job. It's not PPEs, it's way beyond that. And so I think there's all kinds of reasons now when our politicians' attention is focused on this pandemic to secure sort of political support to building some kind of facility that's shared between academia, uh, industry, and government uh, to go forward. So we are prepared for the next one. For this one, we are gonna have to depend largely, perhaps not entirely, but largely on offshore manufacturers. Now, let me ask one of the questions from our audience, because this person has says, once an effective vaccine is identified and manufactured, how is it distributed around the world? Oh, and which countries get it first? And that was the point Shabir alluded to a little while ago. So in terms of distribution and deployment of this manufactured vaccine, how does that happen? And my guess is if you're in a developed nation, that's different than if you're in Senegal and Africa, let's say, or Bangladesh in South Asia. So what about the distribution? Because, you know, you can have billions of doses sitting in refrigeration or whatever is required uh, in various places, but how do you actually get it to the people who need it? And does that depend? Well, that's a huge supply chain logistics challenge, I would think. And Shabir, how do you see that rolling out in your country, in South Africa? So obviously in the ideal world, uh, there should be some level of equity. Uh, in the ideal world, there needs to be some sort of prioritization in terms of who's going to gain access to the vaccine based on need. Uh, as an example, you're wanting, to be vent you're wanting to be vaccinating individuals at that high risk, highest risk of severe disease. You are wanting to, as an example, secure the healthcare worker force. So there's some sort of uh, prioritization that needs to take place. And that needs to be sort of globally distributed. So the WHO is an example as an entity. Uh, it's meant to be that sort of uh, body which basically makes those sort of recommendations. But that is the ideal world and we don't live in that ideal world. And I think the reality right now is that the vaccines are going to flow in the direction of those countries that have basically put money on the table to actually procure vaccines that haven't yet been developed. Uh, that includes governments in the UK, that includes the United States, uh, many other European countries. So the best hope is for there to be at least some percentage of the vaccine, even be it 10 or 15%, that is sort of secured by COVAX, this Gavi initiative, uh, which then becomes available to low middle income countries and to be uh, used on a priority basis within those countries. And I think that's, for me, probably the best case scenario of what's going to exist over the period of the next two years. So 
I'm one of those that don't believe that uh, low middle income countries are going to have that much access to vaccines, at least right into 2022. I think much of the vaccine that becomes available in 2021 is largely going to be consumed by those countries that have already purchased a vaccine in advance. Before I go to you, Alan, that flies in the face of what both Bill Gates said and our Prime Minister Trudeau, right? That no one is safe and safe. Fine paraphrasing. This is a global pandemic, and there has to be, even in our own self-interest, a recognition of the fact that we can't hoard this at home and that we need to be making sure it's distributed effectively around the world, especially in countries, developing countries. Yeah, I fully agree. But I think what seems to be occurring right now is even when you look at uh, Europe and the way they've actually opened up the borders to certain countries and not to others. And that is pretty much what the sort of a situation is lending itself to, where uh, people that come from countries that have had access to vaccine would be allowed to basically move about, whereas countries that don't have access to vaccine, they're effectively going to be shut off from the rest of the world. And that's a dangerous, dangerous situation. But that's the only way that you're not going to be able to have your own country affected by not having a provided vaccine to other countries. Just to jump in here, as you quoted Bill Gates, and if the pandemic is flourishing anywhere in the world, none of us will be safe. And if we haven't learned anything from what happened in Wuhan or from SARS going back to 2003, if there's a pandemic, if there's a highly infectious, dangerous virus anywhere in the world, it will be transmitted to Canada or anywhere else in the world within hours. And so it's in all our interests to distribute this vaccine appropriately around the world. And how we do that and how, what are the multilateral instruments to make sure that happens is still uh, under re real discussion. Um, as Shabir mentioned, the COVAX facility um, is, is a really innovative approach to making sure that developing countries have access to the vaccine. But we already know that President Trump has said that he's bought up at least four or five different vaccines. And I'm sure I haven't seen the deals agreements, their secret agreements, but I'm sure they include first access. I'm sure of that he's put a lot of money on the table. Shabir, uh, last week we were uh, talking about um, other aspects of uh, delivery. And you mentioned the fact that if vaccines were developed that required refrigeration, at least vaccines that required to be frozen and kept at something like as much as minus 80 degrees Celsius. Those vaccines are simply not going to work uh, in much of the global south because refrigeration doesn't exist or can't be counted on uh, and therefore would lead to the destruction of, of the vaccine. That just seems to me that it compounds the challenge of finding vaccines that work in different parts of the world. And I mean, in Africa, would a chilled vaccine rather than a frozen vaccine work? Or do neither of those work and you have to have some other vaccine type? I think that's another critical question. So there's one issue about developing a vaccine, but then it's also about formulation and right. packaging. And the only type of formulation that works in the, on the African continent in majority of settings are something are vaccines that can be sort of at the worst case scenario be kept at two to eight degrees Celsius. Uh, for the gene-based vaccine is based vaccines as an example, that is not going to be vaccines. 
that are going to be capped at two to eight degrees Celsius unless there's some sort of reformulation of those vaccines. But it's also about uh, the packaging itself. So it's something that seems very sort of simple-minded in that you can have one uh, dose of vaccine per individual in a high-income country. In many African countries, because of, research, because of space constraints in terms of cold storage facilities, you can't actually have one dose per person. So you need to have multi-dose uh, uh, vaccines. Uh, but Bill Gates sort of also raised another important issue. All of the focus is around vaccines right now. But the reality is that the world doesn't actually have enough of these vials into which to package vaccines. So that's another shortage of its own, uh, which we're not even really uh, paying too much attention to. So I think it's still a long path to travel at multiple levels, uh, including the logistical component when it comes to deployment of vaccines in low middle income settings. Absolutely. Another question from our audience. If several vaccines show efficacy, will there be an effort to combine vaccines for some additive or synergistic effect? Alan, you want to take that one? Yeah, I think the short answer is uh, yes, quite possibly. And that's under uh, sort of consideration. And I think one reason to think about that is that different vaccines might stimulate different arms of our immune system. So we have two major arms of our so-called adaptive immune system. One arm makes neutralizing antibodies, which we all sort of know about these days. And the other arm, which is less well recognized, but probably just as important against this virus, is uh, cellular immunity or T-cell immune system. Um, and so these two arms, if you think of it as our foot soldiers and the Air Force, uh, are both really part of our defense mechanism against invading pathogens. So it is quite possible that one could think about combining two different uh, vaccines. The challenge is going to be the regulatory issues around that and ensuring that each one of them might be safe, but in combination, are they still safe? So that's going to be an issue. But there's also an another practical issue, going back to what Shabir was talking about, which is there may not be enough of a supply of, of one alone for the whole world, and there may be more of the other one. So again, combining two different vaccines particularly for certain population groups, might be a very effective way to go. But that's way down the road at this point. Shabir, here's another question. Assuming that a new vaccine would not be 100% effective, could this create a false sense of protection and lead to loss of preventive measures with new cases? I would be highly surprised if any vaccine is 100% effective. In fact, right now, most of the studies are being designed with the optimism that we'll have a vaccine that has, that's at least 50 or 60 percent effective, nowhere close to 100 percent effective. Uh, but so it, it comes back to the issue in terms of how the vaccine actually works. Does it only confer protection at an individual level or does it vaccine, is that vaccine somehow able to interrupt uh, the chain of transmission and that is induce herd immunity? So even if you've got a vaccine that is 60 percent efficacious to start off with, if you can get close on to 80 to 90% of your population vaccinated, you basically would get a sort of induced immunity in roughly about 50 to 60% of the population overall. And that is sort of the threshold of population immunity that you require for herd immunity to kick in. So I don't think we need, we shouldn't get fixated on an absolute number. It's really how the vaccine works, which in its totality will determine what actually happens with this pandemic and whether we're only conferring protection at an individual level, or whether we're doing what we really would like to do, and that is sort of induce herd immunity. Alan, 
John, anything you want to add there? Only other thing I would add, I agree with what Shabir just said, which is we're not going to get 100% protection or blocking chain of transmission, nor do we get that with the annual flu vaccines that we all see. So don't expect 100%. But the other important parameter is the durability or the longevity of protection. How long are we protected? And does it, does it go at 70% and then down to zero? Or more likely, is it, let's say, start at 70% and then just gradually drift down over time? I think that's a more likely scenario. Uh, and all of that is still to be determined. Just to change the focus for a minute, we're all familiar with the anti-vaxxers, right? In uh, other contexts. We also are seeing, at least in some places and perhaps with some leaders, almost an anti-science, anti-public health care practitioner bias or rhetoric creeping in. Alan, I think it was you who said that if not, it's a great quote, whoever said it, but I thought it was you, that science is our exit strategy from this. So in terms of what you are seeing and hearing out there in your respective parts of the world, is there a worrying anti-science culture developing? Shamir, why don't I throw that to you first? Well, I guess the challenge that we face right now, and I'm quoting someone else, is that we've got two categories of scientists right now. We've got a 10,000 second epidemiologists and vaccinologists, and we got a 10,000 hour epidemiologists and vaccinologists. And unfortunately, what's coming out from the 10,000 second expert uh, is pretty much anti-science on many occasions, and that creates a huge amount of problems. And on the African continent itself, we've ex it, part of the reasons why we're having difficulties in terms of being able to understand what is happening on the African context is because of recklessness on the part of certain head of states when it comes to their approach to COVID-19. And there's almost denialism. So I don't think it's something that's unique uh, to the US, or I think, unfortunately, it's something that we're experiencing also on the African continent. Alan, anything you want to add there? Well, a couple of things. One is I think we've been very fortunate in this country that our politicians have understood the importance of science uh, to getting us out of it. Um, it is our exit strategy. Uh, it's not original to me. I should give credit to Jeremy Farrar, who's the chief okay. executive of the Wellcome Trust. Uh, okay. It's his quote, but he did give me permission to use it, actually. Oh, great. Uh, uh, so that's, a, you know, so I think the third thing is, in terms of the anti-vaxxers, as you called them, I think we need to understand that um, uh, vaccine hesitancy, which is the phrase I prefer, okay. um, is in this case, I think we need to understand the reasons for it and not dismiss it if we're going to actually deal with it. So I don't view it necessarily as anti-science, uh, but rather um, worrying about the safety of the vaccine itself. Um, and as Shabir said, you know, half an hour ago in this conversation, there's a great deal of emphasis on safety as we go through these trials. Um, and so I think we can not just hope, but we can expect that this vaccine will maybe have some adverse reactions, but be safe in terms of uh, administering to people. The last thing I would say about this is I can't imagine a time when science has never been more front and center in terms of protecting us from this pandemic. And it's not just the vaccine. If you think about the diagnostic tests that are being done, so the polymerase chain reaction for detecting the nucleic acid, the DNA or RNA of this virus, the polymerase chain reaction was a Nobel Prize winning experiment from 35 years ago 
by a guy at the Cetus Corporation, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, so that, that came out of really basic science. The vaccine candidates that are being considered now, the one from the Oxford group, the RNA ones that, that we've been talking about, all of that came out of basic science labs, none of which was geared towards COVID-19. COVID-19 didn't exist when that, when that science was being developed. So I think, to me, one of the great lessons from this pandemic is how important science is to both dampening down the severity of it now that we're in it, but also getting us out of it. Even physical distancing and washing our hands came out of the germ theory of disease. It didn't come out of nothing. It came out of you know, Louis Pasteur's work 150 years ago. So we, we owe, I think, a huge debt to science and to our scientists uh, for all the work that they're doing. As a scientist, I would have expected you to say nothing less, Alan Bernstein. <laughs> um, now, following from that question around the uh, vaccination hesitancy, uh, mandatory nature of vaccines, right? I, the, one of our audience asks whether an employer can make the vaccine mandatory. I mean, we're seeing now all sorts of issues around masks and whether masks can be made mandatory to go into a bar or whatever. And it would seem to be that the provider of services can establish those conditions. Uh, but do you anticipate any nation, any country making vaccine mandatory, taking into account all the normal exemptions for allergic reaction and other things? There is sort of a sense of mandatoriness around it. Uh, as an example, yellow fever, uh, which is a vaccine that many people are compelled to take if you want to travel to certain parts of the world. So that's an example of a mandatory vaccine. But at the country level, uh, right now, I think that's uh, probably the least of our concerns. We're simply not going to have enough vaccines to make it mandatory. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think it's, a, like I said, much of it also depends on how these vaccines eventually work. If these vaccines are able to induce herd immunity, the need for mandatory vaccination, and especially at what, at what threshold it induces herd immunity, the need for mandatory vaccine becomes less. So unlike measles, as an example, where you need to get about 98% of people immune to prevent sort of outbreaks of measles, with this particular virus, we estimate that figures probably closer to 40 to 60%. So I think the need for the vaccine to become mandatory uh, probably becomes less urgent, provided it's large enough uptake of the vaccine. So the only thing I would add there, Anne, is, you know, the focus, of course, is on the person who's being mandated or required to be vaccinated. But for an infectious virus like COVID-19, we should also take into account the people around that individual because there are ethical issues putting them yes. in danger yeah. uh, if they're exposed to somebody who's carrying the virus. So it's, it's a, it's a, as all ethical issues are, it's not a one-sided issue or else it wouldn't be an ethical issue. And some, one of our audiences just pointed out, mandatory is inappropriate, uh, but certainly purveyors of services of different kinds can, in fact, decide not to provide that service unless something, say, like a mask, would be worn, or I suppose uh, some indication that you've been vaccinated. Okay, here's a question that came in really early, and it doesn't deal with vaccines, but testing. A few weeks ago, it was reported that COVID testing can have up to a 30% false negative. Has that number come down or is it still about 30% false negatives? 
Do you guys want to comment on that? Yeah, so I guess we're referring to the PCR testing, uh, the net-based testing that Ellen was referring to, and there is some data to indicate that there might be some level of false negative, uh, 30, up to 30% being false negative. But I think uh, it, also, it also depends on the assay itself. So different assays have got different sort of sensitivity. And other, the other aspect of it is actual taking of the sample. So if you're optimizing your taking of the sample, if you're using a correct assay, uh, you're probably not going to have a 30% false negative value. You're probably going to lessen that to maybe five, 10%. So there's a, multiple, there's a number of uh, issues at play, both the sensitivity of the assay itself, as well as uh, the, the way the sample itself is taken. Uh, thank you so much for that, Shabir. Alan and Shabir, our time seems to have disappeared on us. We had an hour, and uh, I have the feeling that we could have continued this discussion and replying to our audience's questions for quite some time. In a minute each, any concluding comments, whether it's a projection about the future and the likelihood of a vaccine or vaccines. You know, Alan, what should Canada be doing that we're not doing right now in relation to vaccines? Anything you would like to conclude in terms of this last minute or so? Well, maybe I'll start because you're our guest, Shabir. Yeah. Look, I don't think we know whether there'll be a vaccine yet or not for the population for the world. I think the results are all encouraging so far, but I think we shouldn't assume we're going to get a vaccine. A lot of vaccine journeys end in failure, uh, either because the vaccine is not safe or effective or, or both. So I think we need to sort of hold our breath and see what happens. So in the meantime, I think we need to not let our guard down. I've been very impressed in this country with how willing Canadians are in general to distance, to wash our hands, to wear masks. This is a tried and true method. Until we have a vaccine, that's what we're gonna to have to rely on. Going back to vaccines, I think what this whole story shows us is how critical science is uh, in this time of a pandemic. If I was a young person and thinking about this pandemic, how it is affecting 9 billion people. It's a, a world incident that has never affected more people in history than COVID-19. Uh, to think that you could have an impact on that by going into science, I can't imagine a more compelling argument for a young person to go into research. Shabir. I guess for me, this is really the first wave of what is likely to be a few waves, especially more so in countries that are going to lag behind when it comes to accessing vaccines, if these vaccines are developed in the near future. And at the end of the day, I think if we're really serious about being a global village, uh, this is the time to show humanity uh, globally. And it just, uh, it's really an issue about how the world arises to the, raises, rises to the occasion in terms of uh, ensuring that there's some level of equity with regard to the distribution of vaccines if, we, if they are found to be efficacious. I just want to thank you both for participating in this very important discussion. This is a global challenge. We all have our role to play. I think we're all hoping that there will be a vaccine, not a vaccine, more than one vaccine, as Shabir and you were mentioning last week, that one is not going to be nearly enough. And without that vaccine or vaccines, global recovery is not going to be 
real in any sense and certainly not sustainable. But in conclusion, gentlemen, we all have to do our part. And until there's a vaccine, Alan was mentioning things like social distancing and wearing masks and washing our hands. And I just want to show you to the gentlemen, I mean, masks are now fashion statements. And I think, I think that's absolutely great. We all have our different masks and we should all be wearing them uh, whenever we're out and about and not able to social distance and protect other people around us. So again, great big thank you to you both. Uh, Shabir, a pleasure to meet you and uh, thank you so much for being with us. I know it's much later in the evening for you. Alan, always a pleasure. Big, big thank you so much. And I know on behalf of our audience, they uh, have appreciated this discussion immensely. Now, just let me say, if you want to listen to this conversation again, you will be able to find it in podcast form wherever you find your podcasts. And you can also watch this live stream again at recoveryproject.org. Again, thank you everybody for tuning in. Please stay safe. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody.